I'm going to invite you to join me for our scripture reading, which comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Hear now these words from Matthew. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but it's thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This, friends, is the word of God for us, the people of God. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city built on a hill. As I was reading this this week, I had weird flashbacks to high school when we read about, I don't know, some dead Christian guy who did things that he should have done. <laughs> who talked about being a city on a hill. Do I, you all know what I'm talking about? And learning about him in 11th grade, and clearly it didn't stick. I just remember finding the concept to be so cringy at the time. This week, we're reading an excerpt, an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. Just a piece of it. And this is one of Jesus' most iconic moments. It's well known. This line about being salt of the earth and light of the world is well known. It's on tons of Christian t-shirts and bookmarks and all sorts of other things. And I think that makes it difficult to preach about. Because we already have so many preconceived notions How do we add something new or better? How do we make it interesting again? If it feels like old news, what can I add to what most consider Jesus' best moment? I think what we have to do is go back to the basics, friends. And that is salt and light. Two elements that are the staples of this test, this text, and ask, what does it mean to be salt and light? One of the tricky parts of scripture is that it's written so long ago. The context, the world has changed drastically since when these words were penned, and that means the metaphors don't quite work. In today's world, salt and light don't serve the same purposes. And we have the choice of like fancy salts. <laughs> I converted to pink salt a while ago, and I've never gone back. <laughs> Salt 
is easy. It's at our disposal. Salt is used for seasoning in the modern world. That's what it does for us. To be salty is a normal term that people started using recently, meaning you're bitter or you're grumpy or you're mean, like whatever thing. As is light, for a while there people were saying things are lit, which like just doesn't sound right. <laughs> salt is a normal thing for us. It makes things taste a little better. When you sit down to a meal, that's the first thing you grab along with the pepper. Growing up, my grandfather was supposed to watch his sodium intake, and so he had his own special bottle of replacement salt, which just sounds really bad to me. Salt's something you sprinkle on food, it gives beans or cantaloupe or whatever you're eating like an extra kick. So we read this passage and we think, that's what Christians should be. We don't want Christians to be salty. We don't want them to be mean, bitter people. We want them to be the flavor of the world. They should be the spice of life, the fun thing that you sprinkle over stuff to make them taste a little better. But the problem with that is that's pretty surface level. The problem with that is also that if you think salt is the greatest spice in the world, you are not very adventurous. <laughs> The problem with this is we think it means Jesus thinks we're the life of the party, that we're the most important thing for the dish, and like salt, we perhaps cause people's blood pressure to rise <laughs> when we're doing our best work. And I think that can be true to some extent, that we're supposed to be flavorful and stressful and sprinkled over things. I like the idea that Jesus calls us to be bold in a particular way to make things taste better, and to make the world a little easier to take a bite of. But what this skips is that in biblical times, salt isn't used for that. It's not used for flavor in Jesus' day. Salt's used not to add, add flavor to food, but to preserve it. In Jesus' day, the world has yet to be graced with the magic of refrigerators or vacuum-sealed plastic bags. But people need a way to preserve their food, to keep it safe to eat, to prevent from wasting it. So large chunks of rock salt would be used for herbs to preserve foods like dates and raisins, for beans and grains by drying them. Meat would quickly spoil. And so any portion of meat not eaten, eaten would immediately be salted after a meal to prevent the growth of bacteria and rot. So if that's what salt is for in Jesus' day, it means we're not afraid the, the flavor of life. Salt is a preserver and keeper of it. Similarly to salt, light in our time is very different than in Jesus' day. For the most part, light for us is easily accessible. You just whip, flip a switch and it comes on. Not having light is a modern annoyance for most Americans. If the power goes out at home or church or wherever we are, we're completely thrown off, right? You have to find your emergency flashlight and light the candles and it's terrible when the power goes out 
We don't have the light we want easily accessible to us sometimes, and it makes us angry. For anyone who doesn't know, I'm a really big coffee person. I love coffee. And I did most of my master's work at Duke sitting in a Starbucks that was pretty close to my house. Um, I became so close to the baristas that rather than throwing food away, they would give me the leftover pastries and things. <laughs> I also presided over the wedding of one of them this past year. I just lived there <laughs> with some of my friends. And what I loved about that coffee shop atmosphere is meeting other customers and getting to know those people, befriending them. I am still someone who loves to just read a book and sit in a coffee shop, and I pretend that I'm in some like weird, angsty art film, <laughs> and it's raining slightly and there's jazz on, and I dramatically stare out the window and have a moment to myself. Um, that is my favorite thing to do. It's like a rainy coffee shop day. So recently I found myself at a Starbucks because my power went out, which happens a lot in my neighborhood. I live really close to um, Coastal Credit Union, the big, the big amphitheater um, concert venue. There's also a really large four-way stop near there, and people are constantly getting in accidents and hitting generators and poles and things like that. So my power is kind of iffy sometimes. I don't often have internet sometimes, and it's really inconvenient. And so recently I had one of those moments, and what I did was go to Starbucks because I really needed to do work. And I got there, and I just settled into my big comfy chair in the corner and was sipping my coffee and starting to read emails, and the power went out. <laughs> Which I at first thought, well, that's convenient. God doesn't want me to work right now. <laughs> But as I sat there sipping my coffee and not minding that my day was interrupted, the Starbucks went into a full-on uproar. Because like me, other people had also lost their power. And the power at the Starbucks didn't just go off, it would flicker on and then flicker off again. And it was just playing that game where you think it's going to stay on and then it goes off again. The machines kept having to get rebooted and the students in the shop kept crying because the internet wouldn't work. The baristas were like mad dashing around trying to smooth things over. There's all these angry people in the drive-thru who want their coffee and they want it now and the lights are coming on and going off and every time the power comes back on, music really loudly comes back on too and like jars you. It was total madness. And I just sat in my corner and sipping my coffee and watching. People just go into complete chaos because of the inconvenience of light going off. Anger filled the room, people stormed out of the shop and grumbled loudly. Every time the lights came back on, you could see the baristas like let out a deep sigh of relief. And then they'd go back off again and you'd see, see them like clamp up. It was simple, and there was just hordes of angry people who wanted to be mad because they had no control over the light that day. And I just found myself thinking about this sermon and about Jesus' time, because the truth is, in Jesus' time, they have no control over light at any given moment. 
yet to be captured in a ball or a flashlight or anything else, really. Light is a precious commodity. People are completely at the mercy of the sun and the world around them. Light comes on when it pleases. It goes down just the same. It doesn't matter how much people will it otherwise. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is. It doesn't matter that it might be invasive. It's the way it goes. Light is this strange, untamable thing for people in Jesus' time. The sun rises and falls every day, and people build their lives around when the light will be there. Unlike the lighting at Starbucks, it doesn't flicker or waver. The light comes, and it illuminates people's lives, and then it goes. It's not at people's will at all. For people in Jesus' time, light is completely untamable and also steady. Every morning the sun will rise, and every day the sun will set. You can't control it, but you know it will be there. And I find myself wondering what that means for us. What does it mean for us to be light that is steady? To be a beacon of hope. In this passage, Jesus tells people they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and that they are precious commodities. In Jesus' time, light and salt sustain life. They keep meat from rotting. They allow crops to grow. They make a difference every day. They aren't easily produced by people, but naturally occurring in the world around them. They're gifts from creation that exist to serve others around them. They fulfill their purpose when they're not hoarded, but when they're poured out. Salt is only good when it's generally, generously poured over food. It's only doing good if it's being utilized. Similarly, light is only good if it's not being blocked out, but allowed to shine, to illuminate those who need it. Christ reminds those around him not to hide their light under a bushel, not to block it or turn the switch off in the moments when light seems inconvenient or unwanted. The truth is, friends, bushels can only block out light when we put them there. And salt can only preserve food when applied. I think perhaps this gives us a better understanding salt and light. And that is, friends, that we are a precious commodity that does not exist just for ourselves, but is best when utilized for the good of others. We're not people who should be hoarded up and conserved the things in our lives. We're not things to be hoarded up or conserved the things which should be poured out. Not to hide under bushels but to let our light shine, to illuminate every darkness. The question then, I think, is how do we do that? How do we be steady light? How do we ensure that we're salt, which is preserving the dignity of life? What metaphorical beats 
probably keeping the salt from what bushels do we hide under? What do we want to keep unlit? These questions are like strange abstracts and also I think really important. If we're to be salt and light for the world, what in the world do we not offer salt and light to? Jesus reminds us that daily light doesn't magically just end up places, that it's consistent and intentional, that the only way for light to be covered is if we do it. Sometimes, friends, I think our bushels become our very identity. Not only do we put bushels over our lights, we cling to them for dear life unwilling to let them go. They feel like home, and we get so used to things being dimly lit, we forget that they can be brighter. Kind of like when a light bulb in your house starts to die out, and you wait like six months to change it, and then you put it in and go, oh, I can see clearly again. The message translation of this passage Phrases verse 15 very differently. It says, Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, the generous one in heaven. And I love that because it perfectly tells us what light and salt are supposed to be. That is open and generous. Jesus says that we are to be the salt and the light of the earth, friends. And so I want to invite you to throw out your bushels, to let yourself shine, and to let it be steady. To not turn yourself off and on, depending on the context you're in. To not be like Starbucks and just flicker and have a rave. <laughs> to pour out your salt to be generous with preserving the dignity of life, to keep open your house, and to keep open God's house, to let open table be a place where light perpetually shines, and all life 